So open your Bibles with me to the letter of James. We'll still be in chapter 1, a journey through James, part 2 of testing of your faith. So let me check my notes real quick here, make sure I'm correct. James has given us a test of our true faith. We talked about that in the intro last week. We talked about who James is and kind of that backstory. So if you're interested in knowing more about that, let's you can go to uh, Facebook or you can go to any of the podcasts out there on Apple or Spotify or any of those. That, Today's Truth Matters, and I'll put that in the bulletin for you all. Today's Truth Matters, you can listen to any of the sermons and go back and listen to dozens of sermons. So we talked about that last week, and number one is that uh, true faith even has joy in the midst of facing trials. That was number, point number one. That doesn't mean we're all happy and giddy about what we're going through. The joy is a spiritual understanding and knowledge of our salvation and that our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ is sovereign And we have joy in knowing that God is in control of all situations. So no matter how bad it can get, and the other side of that, no matter how good it is or seems, God has allowed that, ordained that, ordained that to happen, or allowed it to happen, and he's got you. God's got you right where he wants you. Okay? So don't worry, there's where the joy comes from. The second point is that, as, as we read in a little further down in there, if you lack wisdom, in verse 5 it says, let him ask God. So the point is being that if, if we seek God for wisdom at such times, he will provide it. So when we're going through those trials, tribulations, or temptations, whatever it may be, sometimes we just don't know what to do with it. Ask God. Or go to God. Sometimes, and it was said this morning, sometimes I don't know how to pray or what to pray to say, God, help me. He loves that because you're reaching out to him. You're reaching out to, to him. And when you do that, when you reach out to your father, he is going to listen. And he's going to do something and he's going to act on your behalf. It's a powerful thing, the Holy Spirit is. As we grow here, grow in the knowledge of the power of the Holy Spirit here. Not only the power to save you, but to heal you and provide you with wisdom and comfort and that mysterious word, joy, in the midst of dog bites. The reality of life, right? Yeah. So what I want to talk to you about today is Putting this faith into action. And here in James, we see that true faith adopts God's eternal perspective. True faith adopts God's eternal perspective. And he uses for our illustrations in the context of the scripture this morning, the rich and the poor. The rich and the poor. So let's take a look at how we get true faith from God's perspective. So I'm just going to start with verse 5 because that's where we ended last week just to give you the backstory and then as we get into verse 9 it'll make more sense to you. 
So in verse 5, it says, If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Let's pause there for a moment. I ended with that last week, but I wanted to say a couple more things. When we ask God, ask without doubting. That seems easier said than done. There's a part of us that wants to hang on to the world. Can God really do that? Does God really exist? Did Jesus really die on a cross for my sin? Is God really sovereign? Is he really in control? You see, when we have those types of thoughts, or perhaps those types of thoughts have come from a lack of prayer, a lack of Bible study, just... uh, a reverence for God that has gone by the wayside. We're not in the God right now. I'm on a roller coaster of life and I'm down here in the valley. I'm not walking with God. That doesn't mean you're not saved. You'll hear me say that a lot because of the sovereignty of God. Once saved, always saved. Once you give your life to Christ, no one can take him from his hand. No one can take you from his hand. But we do have times when we're not walking close to him. And when we aren't, we can begin to have Doubts. When you're in that doubting Thomas mode, don't expect a a wonderful answer. God, I'm going to ask for this, but I don't really think you can do it. Uh, Pretty much you just got your answer. Right? That's what this says. If you're going to ask but not really believe I can do it, then I'm not even going to waste the time. Men? You know what I mean? You know what's right and what's wrong. Guys, I'm talking to the guys right now. You know if you can buy that new Matthew's bow before you ever ask your wife. You know the answer. Either you you know your wife well enough, she's already decided, yes, that's fine. Or it's a no, so you're not even going to bother asking. Or some men, we just go out and we buy it anyway and hope for the best, right? My point is this, that we know when we ask God what we're asking for, and we know when we're asking in sincerity, and oftentimes we already know the answer before we ask, but we're asking anyway because we're like, I really want that. And the fact that you really, really want that sometimes is a sign that you really, really don't need that. (laughs) Does anybody else struggle with that? There's things that I need, and there's things that I want, And the space between them is huge sometimes. As we get into the rich and the poor here. So ask with faith. The faith the size of a mustard seed goes a long way, folks. If you just ask with the faith, and oftentimes that faith comes from humbling us through or into a situation. We're brought to our knees, literally, humiliated, brought to our knees in a situation, brought to the pits, and oftentimes that's where people find Jesus. It's very hard to find Jesus when you're on the mountaintop already and you're looking down. So it's easier to have faith, as we talked two Sundays ago, if you're without stuff. If you're without stuff, 
It's easier to have faith in God because you don't have much and everything you do get, you're appreciative of. Does that make sense to anybody? Those who already have don't think that they need anything more because they think they're in control and that they're sovereign of their little world, and they're not. So it's harder for a rich person to gain entry into heaven, in other words, receive Jesus, because they have a hard time seeing the need. We're going to come full circle here in a minute. I'm going to teach you something today. You're going to be surprised. You're richer than you think you are. So, verse 9. This is where we get into adopting that eternal perspective regarding poverty and riches in faith. So, number verse 9, letter of James, chapter 1. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and weathers the grass, its flowers fall and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Wow. Interesting. Huh? Yeah. Let's just be clear here that as we move forward, this is not a... What you see in today's many churches, this is not uh, name it and claim it uh, doctrine at all. That's heresy. This is not, if you are not a sinner, if you are righteous, if you pray enough, if you play, go to church, God is going to give you a really nice house, he's going to give you really good health, and you're going to drive a really nice car and have the most beautiful, attractive spouse that you ever thought you could possibly have. That's not the way it works. Name it and claim it. It doesn't work that way. I wish it did, but it doesn't. Okay? It doesn't mean just because you're rich, things are good. It doesn't mean just because you're poor, things are good. This is about all of us. And he says, let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation. Let's stop for that. Let the lowly brother. We're talking about people who don't have much. You see, all through the Bible... We compare and give honor to, God does, the poor, for the most part, right? Oftentimes, he, he caters to the poor. If you remember the Beatitudes, right? Blessed are the poor in heart. So poor comes up a lot, but this isn't about money, okay? In this case here, let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation. So... In this context, someone who doesn't have much, you can have great joy in knowing the salvation of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. In knowing that it's an equal playing field in heaven. That those who are rich today and have a lot today, and that's great, we'll pray for them. Maybe they're your friends, maybe they're your enemies, pray for them anyway. When they die... Starts over. You, you don't get to take the new stuff with you. The 55-inch LG tune big screen TV doesn't go in the casket with you. It doesn't go to heaven with you, okay? That new Corvette doesn't go with you, all right? Likewise, the smelly clothes that you might be wearing that you can't afford don't go with you either. The bank account that has its negative balance doesn't go with you either. It's a level playing field, folks. The person with the most toys when he dies does not win. The person with the least amount of toys when he dies does not win either. Do you understand? Amen. Amen. 
This is about a relationship with Jesus Christ. And James gives it to us. The rubber hits the road here. He says, let the lowly, let the poor, let them be humbled. He says, let them realize just exactly who they are. They're just as valuable, if not more so in many cases throughout the Bible, than the rich. Poverty was a big, big deal in the Middle East back then. It was a big deal. It was hot and sticky and smelly and slimy. And poor people were ridiculed. They were killed. They were made fun of. They were stolen from. They were treated as peasants. It was not a pretty place. And James reminds them, listen, humble yourselves. Exalt yourselves knowing that your equality with God is the same, if not more, than the rich who are around you persecuting you now. When I used to start speaking in public, it was very intimidating. The first time I ever had to speak in public was at Illinois College in front of about 600 students and faculty. And part of that intimidation is thinking others are better than you. They're more important than you. And they always say, just imagine your audience sitting out there in their underwear. That never worked. That just made me giggle. But I realized that we're all the same. We're all made by God. We're all human beings and we all have the same fears. Some are just exaggerated more than others, right? I, I don't like spiders. My friend this morning who's in a prayer group with me sent something to me and it uh, was, uh, oh, I don't remember exactly what it was, but it was, I was focused on this envelope being opened. Now this is a true story. I'm in the bathroom in my underwear, brushing my teeth, looking at the phone, watching this thing and as it opens, a spider jumps out and like, pretends like it cracks the screen of your phone. I literally jumped backwards, hit my phone, and it went on the floor and cracked my screen. <laughs> I don't like spiders. So that's an extreme thing for me. Snakes I can handle. Spiders, no good, right? People say, what kind of spider is that? And I sent a picture, I said, it's a dead one. <laughs> so let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation. Recognize that nobody is better than you. God doesn't play favorites. God loves you equally just as he loves me and he loves you. Okay, he doesn't love the person next to you because they pray more, because they do this more. They might have a better relationship with him right now, but if you have given your life to Jesus Christ, he loves you more than you could possibly imagine and he will always be there for you. Exalt in that knowledge of his sovereignty that he loves you no matter what you have done in your life. No matter what you're going to do in your life, if you've given your life to Jesus, you are secure in your salvation. You will never lose your salvation because of a silly mistake that you made. If you don't think God of this, you created this universe, didn't stop to see the silly stuff you're going to do, then you are a fool. God is much grander and bigger than that and divine, more divine than that. And what Jesus did on the cross and in the Garden of Gethsemane was bigger than you. He killed that sin. He defeated that sin. He defeated death. Death. And it was said so well this morning. Jesus wasn't afraid of dying. He was afraid of the process of dying. I'm not afraid of dying either, but I am afraid of getting hit head on in a car crash. I, I don't want to die. I don't want to be in pain, right? Jesus was just fully human when he was in the garden. 
He didn't want to die, but He chose to for you. And because He did, we can stand here and proclaim His holiness. And know, and we can exalt in knowing that no matter who I am, God loves me. I may not have anything to leave behind for my family, but I know God loves me. So let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation. And it says, and the rich, now listen to this, in his humiliation. And that one's a tough one. Let the rich boast in his humiliation. Here's what it means. If you're wealthy, if you're well-to-do, he's saying it is a good and righteous thing for you to recognize, have the knowledge of the power of the saving grace of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And that you conduct yourself accordingly. That even though you have a mega boat or a mega ship or a mega car or a mega house or a mega bank account or whatever it may be, you have a mega father in heaven that goes above and beyond all of that. And you humble yourself, recognizing that though you have been given a lot, there is so much more for you beyond that. God continually compares the rich and the poor to a lot of situations throughout the Bible. But that does not mean that all poor people go to heaven and all rich people go to hell. It doesn't, it doesn't mean that at all. What it means is that you are to celebrate in your exaltation if you're poor and you to celebrate in your humiliation if you are rich. In other words, a truly, if you know, and I know some people that have a lot of money, but they're the most humble people in the world. You, you would never know that. They drive around in dirty, beat-up pickup, pickup trucks. They don't flash their money around. They wear jeans just like I do. They have a house just like I do. They give 10, 20, 30% of their money to, to, to God, and you would never know it because they don't seek, they don't look for praise from the world. That is a rich man, a rich woman who has been humbled. And what he's saying is, he says, if you have that, praise God. Because that is so hard to have. It is so hard to have stuff today and still recognize the need for a Savior. <laughs> when I was going through high school, I remember a number of times a couple of people, it was always the same couple of people, it was always women or girls, I guess, at the time. Come to Sunday school with us. Come to VBS with us, Vacation Bible School. Come to church with us. They would always listen to Christian music. And I was into ACDC and Scorpions and Hard Rock and all that. I wasn't a drunk, drunk drinker or a smoker. I wasn't a bad kid. I was, in fact, I was afraid to do anything wrong because I didn't want to end up in the newspaper and embarrass my family. I was National Honor Society president. I was class president. I did all those things. I was good at sports. I did all that stuff. I was wonderful. I was a classic kid. But I didn't want to have anything to do with Christ. That's dumb. Why, and at that age, I can remember clearly, up until college, why would I need a Savior? How am I a sinner? How? What? I, I don't get that. I, and so I define sin as a set of things that I wouldn't do, and I wasn't doing those, right? But then I began to go to church in my older years, fast college and into my 20s, and I realized what the Ten Commandments were. An impossible set of rules that all of us have broken. Where we have broken one, we're guilty of all. 
Thou shalt not steal. Well, I haven't stolen anything. And I go back and I remember back when I was at Brian's birthday party when I was six years old in Louisville, Kentucky, Middletown, Kentucky, living on 10710 Shelbyville Road. He had a little bitty toy gun underneath his bed. I wanted it so bad that one day when he wasn't looking, I was playing over there. I picked it up, put it in my pocket and walked home. Two days later, I felt so bad about it, I took it back and I got in trouble for it, but I felt relieved that I gave it back to him. I learned a lesson. I'm a thief. Anybody ever lie to their parents? Have you ever disrespect their parents? Have you ever looked at another man or a woman with lust in your eyes? Then you've committed adultery. Have you ever gossiped or slandered somebody behind their back? Then you've murdered their character. You may not have picked up the knife, but they sure felt it in the middle of their back. That, my friend, is sin. It took me a while to figure that out. There's no greater sinner in here than me. And there's another level of, another whole, listen, there's a whole other level of sin out there in the world. I, I hope to God you never see. You never experience, maybe you have. And if you did, I pray for you. God bless you. I hope you never experienced that. There is true, true evilness out in the world. I've seen some of it. It's there. May we always be guarded from it. Let the lowly boast in his exaltation. Let the rich in his humiliation. Because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. Listen to this. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. So let me answer this question for you real quick. Who is rich? Rich is not a name for a person. I do know some Richards. It's not, they're not talking about that. We're not talking about the Donald Trumps of the world or the Bill Gates. We're talking about pretty much everybody seated here this morning. Did you know that in America, okay, the bottom 10% of all income, the bottom 10%, the, the poorest of the poor in America, the bottom 10% of the poor, okay, so the bottom 10%, people that don't have anything by our standards except a cell phone and government aid and a medical car and TVs and a car to drive and sometimes multiple cars. This is the poorest now, the bottom 10% are richer than 70% of the rest of the world. So you tell me, are you rich? Things get tight sometimes, don't they? You're still rich by the standards of the world. This is why I think in America today we're having a dissolution. We're, we're dissolving. It's been going on for about 20 years now. It's gotten really bad the last five years. We don't even appreciate what we have. We think because we don't have two cars in the driveway or an extra car in case one of the cars breaks down, we're not as well off as our neighbors. You see, we're on this keep up with the Jones pace and we build our, we view ourselves as not rich. In fact, we've said either I'm poor or I'm middle class or I'm upper middle class or I'm wealthy. And then we put ourselves in those areas and depending upon the time of the month, I don't know about you, I feel like I'm in different areas. <laughs> I got a little cash on me, I'm feeling good. Then when I have more month than I do money, I don't feel so good. You ever been there? I got news for you. You're still probably more wealthy than 70% of the people in the world. Because in America, we can get food stamps. 
We can get free internet, we can get free power, we can get all kinds of help, and I'm not suggesting any of those that are good things, but I am saying, I'm not making fun of it, I'm just saying, thankfully, we have those things, but the poorest of the poor, and the idea here is to recognize, you're pretty rich! You may not be a multi-millionaire, I know I'm not, but I drove a really nice car to get here today. My son makes fun of it, but it's a nice car. Thursday, my grass, you know how grass doesn't need mowed the next day, literally looks like it needs mowed again. This grass just jumped up with all this rain and my mower uh, has a bad tire on it because there's a crack in the rim. So I took it to Sloan Implement and it's under warranty. They're going to replace it. And so Friday at lunchtime, I left work. I drove to Winchester. I said, hey. My grass, I've got almost two acres. I said, my grass is like a foot tall. I, I need to mow it. Where's my tire? They've had it for a week, right? Well, it's not, it's not back yet. I said, okay, well, I need a rim and a tire, or you need to give me one that I could put on my tractor so I can mow. Oh, yeah, we'll give you back your old one. Oh, okay. So I take the broken one, and I can pump it up just long enough to mow about a half an acre, pull it in the garage, pump the tire back up, mow the other half. At least I got it done, right? So I got it all done Thursday. I see Friday night. So here it is Sunday. I noticed last night when I ran out to an errand that it was just getting dark out. Okay? And where I live, I could actually turn around in the yard, side yard. And as I turned around and my headlights hit the grass, every one of those dandelions I mowed down, I'm not kidding you. Some of them are up four inches. Overnight! How is that even possible? When conditions are right in our lives, we can do a lot of growing. When conditions are right, we can grow overnight. What's really creepy, though, about these dandelions, I thought, is they do a lot of their growing in the dark. And they look good when they come out, right? And they're... And neighbors don't like them, but I, I, I like them because they attract bees and rabbits and all that, but they grow fast. Whatever's in a weed needs to be in the grass because that's what makes the weeds grow, would make the grass grow too, but it's crazy how fast weeds grow. I just couldn't believe how fast it grew. And it's interesting that the, today's scripture talks about the fact that as the grass grows or as the, as the sun rises with the scorching heat and it withers the grass, Very quickly, things that we accumulate, things that we get, things that we have worked for, maybe areas we've developed in and grown, maybe, maybe some of that was in the dark. And when it's exposed to the light, it withers. You see, in the Middle East, the temperatures vary greatly in the Jerusalem area. I mean, there'd be a warm over there no matter what, but they might really drop by 30, 40 degrees or more of a night. And the next morning, you know, after things have come up and things just look great, the flowers are in bloom, the trees look like they've been freshly watered. It doesn't take but just a few minutes in the morning of the scorching 110 heat with a huge southerly wind that comes in. And by noon, all that looks so beautiful perishes in the heat and it's just, just wilted. The point being is this, that all those things that you and I struggle for in life to obtain. And I've been there. 
whether it be education or notoriety or money or relationships or uh, physicality, but being, being physical, uh, physically fit or whatever. Nothing wrong with any of those things, but pursuing those things and pursuing only those things, know this, they will be gone in an instant. Just like the grass burns up as soon as the sun comes out. God is telling us, listen, and I'm 53 now, and some of you are older than that. You know what I'm talking about. You know how quickly things go. It's already May 2nd. It seems like we just started this process. I came here first in February. It's crazy how quickly things go. And as you look back on your life at 92 years old, you probably feel like you're still 25 at times. Yeah. The body may not, but the mind does. It's a, it's a crazy, it's almost a, it's almost a, a mean-spirited thing that we have to age. And now we have all these videos and pictures that are in our Apple iCloud and all that. And you could forever be sitting on someone's uh, table in their dining room now. And the, digitally, the pictures will go through and they might even talk to you and they'll sing songs to you. And how depressing is that? How many of you, I can't go back and look at old pictures of my kids when they were babies. Sometimes when I'm in a store at Walmart or whatever, and I see a little baby crying in, in, a, in a cart, and they're, they're picking it up and taking care of it, I have to walk away. Because it brings back memories of how quickly things change. My daughter's getting married this year. I am going to be marrying her. I am going to be a blubbering mess. <laughs> do you take this? Do you take Who gives this? Somebody else come up here and do this. It's an honor, but it's also quite humbling. You see that it says that um, for the sun rises with its scorching heat, withers the grass, its flower falls, and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. But I want to remind you, congregation, this is not just about the millionaires. I mentioned already that you and I are rich, but this is also for the poor folks. Because you see, people who are poor can also struggle with the same things that a rich person does, only on the other side of the spectrum. A, rich per, or a, a poor person can be so caught up in wanting to be rich, wanting to be famous, wanting to have this, wanting to have that, or so worried about the next bill, or so worried about that, that they have absolutely no focus on God whatsoever. And by them being poor has placed them outside of God's kingdom. By being rich, we have so much, as I said earlier, we feel ourselves outside of God's kingdom because we don't need him. The rich or the poor, in other words, feel like that they've been placed poor and they have a despondency or they have, a, they have a, 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 an anger towards God because I'm poor. I have an anger towards God because I'm handicapped. I have an anger towards God because I'm not wealthy. I have an anger towards God because I'm not thin and good looking like all the magazines. Or maybe I have uh, acne or maybe I'm not as smart as my boss. Or maybe I'm not a manager. I never will be a manager. I've finally gotten to that age where I realize I'm doing exactly what I'm supposed to be doing. And there's other people that have talents that I don't have, believe it or not. There are many people that are a lot more talented than me. And there's a lot of things I can do that a lot of other people can't do. And there's a lot of things that you can do. I can't begin to even play a piano. She taught this morning and then plays the piano like it's nothing. If I got down there and played that piano, y'all kick me out of here. I play chopstick. Ding, 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 ding. We all have gifts. 
So it's not just about one or the other. If there's anybody here today, if you're doubting God, you're wondering, how can I have a relationship with Him? It starts right now. If you say, I'm going to wait, don't wait. Now. You're already living in eternity, okay? You're already on that train. You're living in eternity. Now, where are you going to go? You're going to go spend it with God? Or are you going to spend it separated from God? And we call it hell. And nobody talks about hell more than Jesus himself. So the Baptists like to give us hell and brimstone, you know, uh, sermons all the time. And some people like them. Some people don't. But you've got to talk about the realities of life. And the reality of life is that separation from God is eternal separation and damnation in hell. Do I understand all that? No, I do not. But I know that we're on a sinking ship and we've been sent a life preserver and his name is Jesus. He says, whether you're rich, whether you're poor, good looking, ugly, whatever it may be, smart, dumb, doesn't matter. He says, I'm here for you. This life preserver will fit you. Sometimes the biggest burden we carry is our own mind. Our own thought process. Nobody's harder on you than you. You haven't learned to forgive yourself when Jesus forgave you 2,000 years ago before you were born. Yet I will hold grudges on myself for lack of performance or what I said. That's conviction of the Holy Spirit. That's not being condemned by Satan. Satan will try to make you think you're not worthy, you're no good, you can't get to heaven. Why would anybody like you even try? That stuff that the pastor says or the teacher says or they hear on WIBI radio or whatever, it's all silly. It's for money. It's for profit. It's for show. you got better things to do with your time, buddy. And we live in a world today where all of us are so rich-minded that we actually pay attention to that lie. And the pews aren't full today. Because of a lot of factors. One of them being COVID. One of the greatest feats that Satan ever accomplished. In my lifetime, I've experienced in the last year. COVID's a bad thing. You need to wear your masks. And you need to wash. You need to get your shots. All that thing, whatever. Whatever your political view may be. Let's stay away from that. But the reality of it is, we all have a sin problem. And we're all going to die. From something. So the most important thing we can do is get people in the church and tell them about their lifesaver, Jesus. This is the only place you're going to hear it. You're not going to hear it in school. You're not going to hear it in college. You're not going to hear it in the public. You're not going to hear it on CNN, MSNBC, even Fox News. You're not going to hear it there. You're going to hear it in a Bible, believing a Bible-based church like we are. Amen? All right. We'll continue next week in James will be a little bit further along. So let's stop here today as we begin to think about the rich and the poor. And I want you to realize how rich you really are. Rich in mercy, though, is Jesus. Rich in glory. Rich in His grace. Now we just need to humble ourselves. As we play the music here this morning, we'll stand if you have got anything separating you between you and God right now, come up. If you have something you want to lay on the, on the cross,
come up. You want to give yourself to Christ, come. Don't wait. If there's a burden you have right now you want us to pray for, you, we will. This is not a time to be embarrassed. This is a time to let the Holy Spirit move in your life. This is what we call an altar call so that you can give reverence to the sovereign God and say, I'm, I'm, I'm yours. And I sometimes struggle with my faith, but not today. Not today. Heavenly Father, thank you for this day. I thank you for your Holy Spirit with us. Lord, I thank you for the music we're about to sing. Lord, may it be for the glory of your son, Jesus. May the words we spoke today be for the glory of your son, Jesus. May the thoughts we're having and the rumblings in our stomach and the anxiousness in our feet be for the rumblings of Jesus as our Lord and our Savior. Lord God, we thank you for all that you're doing, you have done and are going to do. It's in Jesus' name I pray and the congregation says.
this morning? Well, then, that was special music, all right? Did you see the theme, the cross? Awesome. All right, you'll turn with me in your Bibles to, yes, James, there you go. We're still in James chapter one, we're shortly going to be in chapter two, and uh, this has been a fun ride. I hope you have gotten something out of it. I know I have. Oftentimes the teacher gets more from the lesson than the student. All right? I know that not necessarily teaching, but my preaching does have a component to it of teaching. And it's important that we understand context and where we're coming from. And for those of you who may just be joining us, we've been in the book of James. And the theme of James is be doers of the word. And we haven't quite gotten to that theme yet because... James has given us an introduction of some things to consider, to count it all joy when we're going through our trials. And if we lack wisdom to ask God, what is it that's going on here? God, what, what am I to take away from this? And to realize that though we look at the world as rich and poor, really most of us are rich when it comes to the mercies God has granted us, to the common grace God has given to us. And even financially, the majority of the world is much worse shape than what we are, even the poorest of the poor, financially. So to rejoice in all of that, and then he begins to tell us that uh, if we continue to find Joy in the tribulations and the trials, there is a crown of glory waiting for you. And this is speaking to the sovereignty of God. God is in control. And even Satan can't do anything unless he has permission from God. You can read the book of Job to discover that. As depressing as that book can be, the joy in knowing that God is in control in the midst of all your situations is very comforting to me. Life is hard, but God is good. God is good. When we say we love God and we find ourselves going through situations, do you really love him? Have you been through those situations in your life? What did you do? Did you turn to God or did you turn from God? As humans, it's easy to turn from God. It's easy to want to argue or even walk away. But a true born-again child of God, someone who's given their life to Jesus, finds his way. God will reel you back in. 
You've not lost your salvation because if you've lost your salvation, you never had it to begin with. Because salvation, my friends, is a gift from God and given by God and no man can take away. Satan himself can't take it away. Nobody can take it away. You see, in the context of the day that James is writing this letter, James was a leader in the Jerusalem church. Some say even the senior pastor. So he was speaking primarily to converted Jews and they were scattered. They were dispersed. They were, some cases, literally running for their lives and meeting oftentimes in small little pockets all over the region. And he wanted to encourage them because their lives literally, in a lot of cases, were in danger. And he says, listen, stick to it. This is where the rubber hits the road. When things get hard, here's what I want you to remember. James was an awesome pastor. He was an awesome leader. He's the half-brother of Jesus himself. He didn't give his life to Christ until after his death, burial, and resurrection. He says, whoa. <laughs> yeah, that's enough for me. That guy I grew up with, he's God. We talked a little bit about that. So now as we move through chapter 1, I want to specifically to look at verses 19 through 21. And we may get a little bit further, but we will see. I have a lot of passages of Scripture here from Psalms and Proverbs. We don't oftentimes preach from Proverbs too often. But I want to point you to some verses that go right along with today's message. And that is listening, hearing, understanding before we talk. <laughs> Boy, do I struggle with that one. What does James tell us? The Holy Spirit says in verse 19, Know this, my beloved brothers. Let every person be quick to hear. Slow to speak, slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your soul. Wow. He just says, listen, folks. Before you get too far ahead of yourself, before that tongue gets to moving and you respond to every situation, because as we're going to see later on in, in James, the tongue is the same that blesses God and curses people and curses God and blesses people. And it's a vile rudder that steers the ship even as small as it is. But more importantly, let's take... In context, verse, six, uh, verse 19. So the first thing is, I want to notice the word every. It says everyone, everybody, every person, every man, every woman, every child, every human being, regardless of your background, regardless of your attitude. It says every person be quick to hear. Quick to hear. What does that mean? doesn't mean we necessarily always agree with everything we're hearing. It doesn't mean that at all. But it means to pay attention to what is being said. Put listening as a priority. Today we live in a society where talking is a priority. And we talk so that we can be 
heard and we can give our opinion. And oftentimes, regardless of the facts, we're giving our opinion. We live in a talk show society. We have talk shows for all kinds of, we have podcasts as mentioned earlier. We have talk shows after talk shows. Wouldn't it be nice if there was a listening show? No. Wouldn't be very popular. Facebook is all about talking. I know some of you don't get on social media. I understand that, but Facebook and Instagram and Twitter. You may be familiar with Twitter as our former president really made it popular because it was about talking, not about listening. My mother and father are great Christian parents and my father's very wise man says to me, Scott, never overlook an opportunity to keep your mouth shut. Well, that goes through my, my mind pretty much every day. <laughs> pretty much every day, I think. Do I really need to respond to that? So be quick to listen. Be ready to listen. You know, one of the biggest problems today for many of us are remembering a person's name when we're introduced to them. Anybody have that problem? Yeah. Me too, so don't be offended if I forget your name. Right, Bob? I mean, Dwayne. Sorry. And part of that comes from our culture, and that is we want to jump on and be ready to say something and we're really not listening. We hear it, but we're so engrossed in what I'm going to say or how I'm going to respond or what I'm going to brag about or inform them of or give my opinion that when they introduce themselves, five minutes later, we're going to have absolutely no idea who that dude is. Hey, guy. How are you? Work on that. Focus on the name. Don't put yourself first. Put the other person first. A good practice. Just common, general advice here. Repeat their name back to them. Dwayne, how are you doing? Dwayne, good to meet you, Dwayne. Robin, how are you doing? Robin, Robin, right in your name. Susie, okay, good, good. Got it, Dorothy, Becky, Ed. I'm going to stop there because I'm going to embarrass myself in a minute because I don't know everybody's name yet. Put them first. Be quick to listen. Don't be so engrossed with the company that you're more engrossed in your own company. Right? You know what I mean. And, and, and pardon me, but don't, don't be offended by that. But not all the time do we forget names because we put ourselves first. Sometimes we're just busy people, but... It really is hard to be quick to listen. You know that when a child grows, okay, when a child grows, the number one thing that they learn is listening techniques. They're listening. They're digesting. About 46% of the time in our lives, we're listening. We're just listening. Almost half the time, we're just listening. It's one of the development things in a child, yet somehow when we get to be adults, we forgot to how to listen because we just want to speak. And all through school, what, they don't ever teach you how to listen, they, but they teach you how to speak. You have oral English, you have written English, you have 
speaking classes, you have all these things, certifications you can get for speakers, right? But we forgot the art of listening. And why is it important to us? Well, God is a great listener. God is an awesome listener. He listens to our prayers. And he doesn't just listen, he hears and he responds. And he even responds to the lost when they call on him. For all who call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. So that means somebody's listening. <coughs> you ever have a child? And you say something to him. What? Well, come in the other room. What? Take your headphones off. What? Or sitting in the family room. Child is down the hallway. Teenager. In his room. Instead of walking down the hallway, knocking on the door, we pick up the phone and call. <laughs> or text. That's the generation we live in now. Yeah. Teenagers generally don't know how to listen. And they don't want to listen because they're tied up doing something else. And we brought that with us as an older generation. Be, be wary of the gift of listening. We don't always have to agree. But you know what? When we're sharing the gospel with somebody, we're sharing something about God with somebody, we're vessels. And the Holy Spirit is the one that makes the change. When we speak to somebody about salvation, and oftentimes when we do, we feel like, well, I got to give them the salvation message. I maybe even prayed with them, but you walk away from it going, oh, I didn't really feel good about that. Um. In 2 Corinthians, you don't need to turn here, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 7, we need to be like Paul and have this attitude about our witness when we're telling people about the gospel, or really about anything. And he says, but we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. So when we're engaging in a conversation with somebody, we're trying to convince them of something, perhaps in this case, the context is the gospel message. Don't be disappointed in their response because you're not going to change them. You're just a vessel. We are to teach and preach and to go and tell the world about Jesus, but the Holy Spirit is the one who saves. Okay? He saves. You don't, I don't. But we have a responsibility. We're just a vessel, and to look at it from the perspective God, and Paul has said through uh, God, God's in control, but you gotta give him the message. Okay? All right. Know this, my beloved brothers, be quick to hear and then slow to speak. In other words, not to speak slowly and not to not, not always agree with everything as mentioned earlier, but to evaluate what you're hearing. And this really helps because if you're focused on what's being said to you, whether it be a name or a topic, okay, don't begin to transcribe your answer before you hear the rest of the story. 
Honestly, just listen and be slow to respond. So many times today, have you ever talked to somebody and they interrupt and they're wanting to get their idea across to you? Well, they're not really listening to you because they're so engaged in what they want you to hear what they have to say. I want you to hear what I have to say because what I have to say is more important than what you have to say, right? Oftentimes, over the years, I've learned this technique and that is simply to listen. Even, even when there's some silence on the person that's talking to you, just, just listen. If you ever have to be with somebody and they're going through the grieving process, there really isn't much you can say. Rather, it's just to listen. Do you remember Job and his three friends? And there was a period of seven days there where they just virtually sat in silence. And Job was talking and even his wife told him to curse God and die. And he, you know, just, there was just a period of listening there. But then when Job opened up and began to speak, boy, here it come, right? And then his friends were quick to speak. They wanted to rebuke him for what he was saying. And somehow he had sinned against God. Even his, like, again, even his wife had said, curse God and die. Why, why? And Job listened to all that, took it to God. God talked to Job. Job listened. God listened. And then in the end, what happened? Job was paid back in full and then some with blessings from God. Now, he didn't get his kids back. He got other kids. He didn't get the farm back, but he got a farm. He didn't get the livestock back, but he got livestock. So in your life, realize sometimes, too, as a side note, that when we receive God's blessing, sometimes he's to take us out of a situation to give us another one. Right? That's why the, the, the uh, driver's window is so much larger in your car than the rear mirror because we're supposed to focus on moving forward, not what's behind us. Easier said than done, Right? So, let a person be quick to hear, slow to speak, and, and very important here, slow to anger. Whew. A wise person will listen to somebody, may not necessarily agree with what's being said, and oftentimes we don't, but that's no excuse to prompt you to an angry response. So let's just say, Let's just say you're talking to somebody about Jesus. You're trying to convince them Jesus is God. Jesus is the Son of God. No man comes to the Father except through Jesus. And you explain this to them, and they want to argue with you about their beliefs, that there is no absolute truth, and that I'm a Buddhist, or I'm a Hindu, or whatever it may be. And it makes you mad. And you just, you know what? There's, let me ask you something. By you getting mad at them and getting louder and trying to make your case, is that for the glory of God? Well, heavens no. You're just pushing them away, aren't you? Here's a key to listening, being slow to speak and really slow to anger. And that is understand the perspective of the person that you're talking to and where they're coming from. Walk in their shoes for a minute. What have they been through? You really don't know people till you know people, right? And even then, sometimes we don't. We want to try to have the perspective, discernment of where somebody's coming from. Where does that opinion originate? And oftentimes it comes with them because that's the way they've been brought up. That's the way they've grown. That's just the attitude they've had. They've never heard anything like what you're talking about. And we're talking about the gospel message here. But you can apply that across the board to any conversation you're having. It's important that you and I realize that in the context of outside of the gospel world, and we get into the secular world, 
we're not, you and I are not always right on matters. <laughs> Sometimes, and oftentimes more than we want to admit, the person you're talking to has a little more wisdom than you do. I have literally had elderly men come to me and tell me that the King James Version of the Bible is the only legitimate Bible to preach from. Okay. I love you. But then they get angry about it. They want to convince me of it. And what, do you, what do you think my response is? Well, I ain't never preaching from the King James Version if that's how you represent it. And even that response is not right because I have to be open to God, right? So I, I, I look at lots of translations, but I used to feel like, oh, well, they want me to preach from that one, so I'm going to preach from that one. And then I think, wait a minute, how did they present that to me? You're not always right. I'm not always right. My strength and my weakness is sometimes I listen too much. And then I overanalyze. Do you do that? I'd rather have that burden than the one where I'm jumping into a conversation very quickly. What does God say about that? Well, if we're gonna, I'm going to go over to read you some things from Proverbs, so bear with me here. told you God is a good listener. You don't need to turn with me because i got lots of them here. In, uh, uh, this is in Psalms. I said proverb. Psalm 116, 1 and 2 says this. This is Psalm 116, 1 and 2. It says, uh, I love the Lord because, I love the Lord because he has heard my voice and my pleas for mercy. Because he is inclined his ear to me. Therefore, I will call on him as long as I live. He has inclined his ear to me. Listen, God will listen to you even when you're wrong. Hmm. That's a pretty patient God. Listen, there's nothing that you or I can say that surprises God. And in his mercy and his grace and his love, he's the, listen, he created you and you and I as the creation or going to the Creator saying, yeah, but God, did you think of this? <laughs> think about that for a minute. Yeah, He did think of it. And even though you're wrong, He's going to listen to you because God is a good listener. So we, congregation, have to be a good listener. God wants us to be good listeners. And really, if we go back to James, when it says all should be slow to speak, quick to listen, slow to anger, that doesn't mean some of us. It means all of us. So there is no excuse for a Christian to say, well, that's just the way I am. No. Uh, that's not an excuse. Then you need to work on that because God has given us a direct command to be slow to speak, quick to listen, slow, most importantly, to anger. I have, oh, if I go back in my life and I think about the times where I'm really embarrassed about my behavior, it's when I got angry. And then when I think about the context of why I got angry, I think, well, that was really, really dumb. And I look like a complete fool. Anybody ever been there? Wish you could take it back. Wish you could hit a rewind button, go back, start over. Nope, can't do that because once it's out there, it's out there. And you're going to look really smart or look really stupid. <laughs> You're going to feel really good about what you said, 
And then, after a period of time, because you got it off your chest, you look back and go, wow, that was really inappropriate. And I don't necessarily mean vulgar words, but I mean the concept as a very simple illustration, when I was in high school, I was an athlete. But I wasn't as good an athlete as a couple of the other players on the basketball team. And they, every week, they would get their name in the paper for scoring 10 points. And they, they would score two points and they would get their name in the paper because they knew people, right? One game I did really, really well. And I had I have a, I had a double-double. I had double points, and I had double numbers and rebounds. I had like 11 rebounds and like 12 points. And I remember saying to the coach in front of the, the team, this is, I, I don't even want to say how I said it, but that better reach the paper. <laughs> Why would I remember that? That better reach the paper. Now, what you don't know, okay, in my ignorance, I didn't think about this fact that the publisher of the paper, the boss of the paper was a guy by the name of Ed Ketchum, who's my father. <laughs> That's the true story. So, what else does uh, God tell us in his word? How about this? Proverbs 15 Verses 1 and 2. Proverbs 15, verses 1 and 2. Talking about anger. It says, Proverbs 15, verses 1 and 2. A soft answer, a soft answer turns away wrath. But a harsh word stirs up anger. <laughs> the tongue of the wise commends knowledge, but the mouths of fools pour out folly. <laughs> what was I a fool? situation I gave you and that's not the only one I have many foolish situations where I thought I needed to say something because I got to be right and I got to get recognized and then uh, this no truer words than this the tongue of the wise commends knowledge but the mouths of the fools pour out folly wow when it says commends the wise that means when you are in a conversation with somebody and you recognize all of a sudden they're right I didn't think of it that way it is a wise person to take a step back and absorb that information. Not to try to make a case why it may or may not be true and pick it apart, but just accept it for what it is. You were wrong. They were right. That hurts men, doesn't it? Yeah. I would give you that advice to all married men. They are right. You are wrong. Amen. <laughs> And when a woman says, I'm fine, she's not really saying, I'm fine. You need to listen. <laughs> There's a problem. The point is that just because somebody says something, you've got to listen to how they say it. Listen to this. As we listen, as we put ourselves first, this is what happens. This is in Proverbs 18, verse Two. Proverbs 18, verse 2. A fool takes no pleasure in understanding. 
but only in expressing his opinion. Not my words, God's words. Listen to this again. A fool takes no pleasure in understanding, i.e. someone else, someone else's perspective, but only in expressing his or her opinion. What's God say? You're a fool. Other translations literally say, you're dumb. That's dumb. To give your opinion and not listen to somebody else's, even though they may be right. A wise person recognizes they're not always right. Listen to this. If you go on down in, in Proverbs, uh, Proverbs 18, verse 13, it says something very similar in this context. If one gives an answer before he hears, it is his folly and shame. Wait a minute. If one gives an answer before he hears, it is his folly and shame. Proverbs 18, 13. How do you give an answer before you hear? The point is this. You may not have listened to anything that was just said to you. When I speak in public, and I do a lot of it for training, and I've done some motivational speaking over the years. I don't do that anymore. But certainly I've done a lot of preaching. But in the training context, let's say safety training, environmental training, just business training in general, when somebody in the audience asks a question, there's two reasons I repeat it back. One is so that the folks in the back can hear what the question was. And more importantly, and this is, this is between you and I, the reason the question is repeated by me is to make sure I listened and really understand what they were asking. So I'll repeat it so that the person has an opportunity to correct me because sometimes even when I'm intentionally listening, I may not have understood what was being asked of me. So before you get anger or angry, make sure you understand where the person's coming from. Did they really mean that? See, that's the problem with texts and emails is that we can put our twist on it. We can put an emphasis. We can emphasis. Depends on where you put the emphasis. And it makes the word sound completely different. Or the intention. Accidentally, one time, I sent an email and my caps lock was on. You know where I'm going with this, some of you. I sent an email with all my caps lock on so that all was all capitals. In the world of, of the uh, social media and the internet and that type of communication, when you type in all capitals, that means you're yelling. So the person called me and says, why are you so mad? I'm like, what? He said, why are you so mad? I said, matter what? Now you're making me mad. I have no idea what you're talking about. You put it in all capitals. Oh, sorry. Don't be so you know, narrow-shouldered there. All right. Some of you didn't know that. All right, what does uh, Proverbs, I'm staying in Proverbs. This is chapter 19. Proverbs chapter 19 says this in verse 27. Cease to hear instruction, my son, and you will stray from the words of knowledge. Proverbs 19, verse 27. Cease to hear instruction, my son, my daughter, my children, and you will stray from knowledge. Listen and get knowledge. That's how we get knowledge, is listening to people. Okay? And when we're listening, draw out what is really being said. 
That's what the purpose of listening is. What is really being said? Because not everybody is as good a communicator as you are. Okay? Some, I, I had a conversation with somebody yesterday and it was painful. It's like, will you talk? <laughs> you ever had to carry a conversation? You? And you just want to stop? <laughs> I'm not enjoying this conversation because it's one-sided, right? Well, Part of it is understanding, drawing from them, trying to tap into what is the common thread here to get them to talk. What's, maybe something's bothering them. Maybe they're sick. Maybe they have a stutter. Maybe, there's, maybe you intimidate them. So, Proverbs chapter 20, verse 5 says this. Proverbs chapter 20, verse 5 says this. The purpose in a man's heart is like deep water, but a man of understanding will draw it out. I'll repeat that. The purpose in a man's heart is like deep water, but a man of understanding will draw it out. You see, we, you and I, can have some very deep-rooted opinions or concerns or issues, and when you're listening to somebody, it's important that you realize those may indeed exist, and it's your job sometimes to draw that out. As a pastor, as a counselor, as somebody who has visited with people over the years, sometimes as I listen, and what I'm really doing is I'm drawing out their pain. I'm drawing, what is it that's bothering them? And when I sit in silence, or you sit in silence, oftentimes, eventually, they'll tell you what they want to tell you. You don't have to try to figure it out. That's drawing it out of them by loving them, being patient, not judging, saying, I'm here. We are to be wise and to allow and understand that we are complicated people. And a wise person will try to draw that information out and understand their perspective. But we all serve the body of God. We all want to love God, serve God. And listen to this. Back in James. We'll end with this. Verse 21 of chapter 1 of James, Therefore put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness, and receive with meekness the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. This is the implanted word is speaking of the gospel. Speaking of the gospel message, and it is the greatest story ever told. It's the message of salvation, the death, burial, and resurrection of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And when we're sharing that story, whether it be with words or in our lifestyle, in our actions, in our deeds, it's important that people see genuineness. They see that you are indeed uh, not just a Christian, but living for Christ. I don't like using the word religion because it's more about a relationship with Jesus. And when we have that relationship with Jesus, our behavior naturally, listen, naturally manifests itself in a way that convicts other people and draws other people to Jesus. So getting angry about what translation the pastor is preaching from is not drawing and edifying the church. It's not drawing people to Jesus. It's pushing people away. And don't be upset when someone is honest with you. My wife is the most honest person in the world. She absolutely will not lie. And I have to be very careful when I ask her. <laughs> How do I look today, honey? 
Because she'll tell me. But that's where she comes from. That's, that's how she grew up. That's, she's honest. She just doesn't lie. It, it, no, I mean, it's wonderful being married to her. She doesn't lie. And she raised her kids that way. And when we have a child that's on the spectrum, anything that's said and done in the house, by golly, better be on the up and up because he's going to tell the whole world. <laughs> and he does. <laughs> so it's important that we put away all that filthiness. Not necessarily foul language, but just the thinking. Don't think ill of somebody else automatically. We do that, don't we? I like to get to know somebody on my own uh, terms. Um, I met a gentleman one time years ago, and I'll finish with this, because it's important that we do not come to quick judgment on people. There's a place to judge. There's a time to get angry. We're not talking about righteous anger. We're not talking about those types of things. I met a man many, many years ago, and he gave me a coin, and I don't have it on me. I carried it with me for a long time. Nicest guy in the world, but he would fall asleep during the session we were in. It was a, a men's retreat. And we were sitting at the same table. We became very, very close over a period of three or four days. And one day he didn't show up. And I thought, well, what's wrong? What's wrong with him? I got up and left to look for him. And what I didn't know was that he was the guest speaker that day. I didn't know that it was a plant. I didn't know that this man that I'd become dear friends with, had shared my life with, had shared my very soul with at the time. For those of you who don't know anything about me, about 10 years ago, there was a lot going on. This man knows my life. I knew his life, I thought. He got up there and he gave a testimony that he had spent the last 40 years in prison for murdering four people. Now, had I known that before I sat down at the table with him, don't you think I would have asked to sit at a different table? I want you to think about that for a minute. People can change. This man had been transformed by the power of the Holy Spirit on his life and was not anything like I thought he was had I known about his past. It was a new creation. The old is gone and the new has come. Christ loves him as much as he loves you. Because in all of his sin, you have sinned too. Heavenly Father, thank you for this day. Thank you that regardless of my sin, you love me. You chose to love us. To go to a cross for me. Fill in your name. You chose to go to the cross for me. Even though you knew, you knew the vulgarities that would come out of my mouth. You knew the stupid things that I would say in, after a basketball game. You knew. Fill in the blank. Lord, we all have skeletons in the closet. We all have issues. We all have opened our mouths at times when we should have kept them shut. Lord, I pray that as we move forward this week as a, as a body that we have learned from your spirit, Lord God, that you are the ultimate listener. And that even when we're wrong, and we oftentimes, more times than not, are wrong, you listen. It's 
why you've told us to pray for your will to be done and not ours. Because our will oftentimes is just not right. Yes, you give us freedom of choice, but thank you, Lord God, that you love us even when we choose wrong. Lord, may we continue to grow this week, be convicted by your spirit. Lord, teach us. May we all walk more like Christ as we leave this place this morning. It's in Jesus' name we pray the congregation says, Amen. As our music folks come forward, we will. Do you want to play something? Yes. Sweet. Go ahead. That'd be awesome. I didn't want to feel like you had to because I'm up here. This is incredibly unrehearsed. you rehearse that a little bit before you come up here. <laughs> it was amazing. God bless you. Charlie Brown, he's a clown. <laughs> well, Caleb will be playing in the musical this week at JHS. And uh, his brother will be singing. So, I will not. <laughs> Rusty, you will be leading the music from now on. <laughs> get, get him a hearing thing, will you? <laughs> he did that on purpose. No, I didn't hear you really. <laughs> I'm telling you the truth. Sometimes I got selective hearing. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's good to be here. Turn with me in your Bibles to James chapter 2. James chapter 2. My favorite 
book and verse in all the Bible. James chapter 2. I'm going to kind of glaze over verses 1 through 13 because I want to jump right into the meat of the matter today. So we'll go back and pick that up, but for context purposes, I'm going to go ahead and read it because it, it, it factors in. It's an important letter. James writing to uh, the dispersion, writing to a lot of Jewish Christian converts, and he's trying to encourage them in the plight of their situation. And I want you to keep something in mind. James is writing to fellow brethren. He's writing to Christians. Okay, so he's writing to people who have already confessed their faith in Jesus Christ, have uh, repented of their sins and turned to him in faith. So he's speaking to them. He's speaking to you if you are a Christian. All right? It's very important as we get into the details of chapter 2. So I'm going to start with verse 1. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in your Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down at my feet, have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Question mark. Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen the, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which He has promised to those who love Him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich ones the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself and you are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable for all of it. For he who said do not commit adultery also said do not murder. If you do not commit adultery but do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak and act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. We'll stop there for just a moment. Talking about the sin of partiality. So very quickly as we move into faith without works is dead. It's very important that as we have mentioned in the previous weeks, as I shared with you, to look at people equally. All are created equally by God. All of his creation we are to cherish, not to worship, but we are to love. We're to love all of his creation, all of everybody, no matter how smart or dumb or what you look like uh, in a bathing suit, right? People at this time of year are like, oh, I don't, I don't want, you know, especially me. I don't want you to see me in my bathing suit, okay? It would not be a pretty sight. But God made me. And he made you just exactly the way you are. And we're not to judge people on their looks or what they're wearing or what they're eating or what they're driving or how they talk or how they walk or the color of their skin or whatever. The point here is that James is trying to tell us, Jesus is trying to tell you when somebody walks into the doors of the church and you treat somebody special because you perceive they're in a higher status of society, you're committing sin. You're to treat the poor vagabond who comes in the doors and maybe hasn't had a shower for two weeks exactly the same way. 
We are all created in the image of God. And who are you? Who am I? Who are we to judge God's creation? And to truly call yourself a Christian, to truly be a Christian, is to have no partiality as we interact with other people. We do it every single day. As you drive down the road or interact in your jobs or your school or whatever it may be, and you see somebody and you have that thought, oh boy, I'm glad I'm not them. Maybe they think the same thing when they look at you. The older I get, the more I realize that uh, it is important to treat people equally with love and generosity. We are to love others as we love ourselves. But sometimes it's hard to love ourselves, right? And we make an excuse not to love others because I don't really care for myself. But you need to realize that you are a beautiful creation that God has, has made. God has made you just exactly the way that you are. All of your little problems as well. He is sovereign and in control. And every good gift comes from God. So the sin of partiality. So he's giving us this as we jump down into verse 8. He says, you know, you want to you wanna say that uh, you're a Christian. You want to say that you're doing well, but then you fail in this particular area of partiality. You're still sinning. And some might say, well, I haven't committed murder. Okay, good for you. But you still sin. Well, I haven't stolen anything. Yeah, but you murdered somebody. Think of murder this way, not necessarily as putting a knife in somebody's body, but when you talk ill of somebody behind their back, it's not only gossip, but you are murdering their spirit. You're murdering their character, and it does no good. You know, when I'm by myself or in the light of company, this afternoon I'm going to go golfing with three buddies, and when our wives come up, the topic always comes up with a group of men. Surprise, surprise, honey. Um, I always speak highly of my wife. No, because to speak otherwise would be to murder her, to make her look bad to those who I associate with. And that's not the way it should be. So you may not be the best husband. You may not be the best wife. You may not be the best friend. But who are you to tell others just exactly how bad they are? When in reality, you're not so great yourself. <laughs> so remember the sin of partiality in, in, in the context that says, uh, uh, do not commit adultery and do not murder. He says, but if you do not commit murder, uh, well, you still have a transgressor of the law because you've talked ill of somebody. And he says, so speak and act as those who are to be judged. Speak and act as somebody who is to be judged. In other words, uh, every word that you say, think about that. We'll talk more about the tongue as we get deeper into James. And know that you are being judged. <laughs> so as soon as you cast judgment on somebody, you've just been judged yourself. Right? By God. We're going to be held accountable for all of our actions, all of our thoughts, all of our deeds, all of our good and our bad stuff that we do. It'll all be, I don't know how it's going to, I don't know how we'll know it or how we'll see it or whatever, but we'll go through it. It'll be a pretty long file cabinet, you know. You ever seen that show, Bruce Almighty? You see the long file cabinet, he pulls out, he just goes like from one end of the room to the other end of the warehouse. Kind of funny, but to this point, there's a lot of stuff in there. That's why we need a Savior. My file cabinet's got some cruddy stuff in it, right? 
I have said bad things about people. I have thought bad thoughts. I've, you know, uh, I've committed sin, and you have too. We're, we all do. We try. And that's what James is about. This is why I love the book of James, because he said, this is where the rubber hits the road. This is what I want to get into now. We get into James chapter 2, starting in verse 14. James chapter 2, starting in verse 14, as we begin to think about not just what we actually physically do for people, but as a preface, how we think of people. This is what we just talked about, how we think of others. And our actions oftentimes follow that thought process. So it's important that our thought life and how we view people as a creation of God, not that you're better than them or worse than them, because some of us have that problem too, that I'm not as good as. Yeah, you are. No, you are. You were created by God too. We have a thought life that matches then actions. So, Here's what James says. Verse 14, what good is it, my brothers? Again, speaking to Christians, speaking to those who have been saved, not to those who are not saved, but to brethren and sisters. If someone says he has faith but does not have works, question mark, what good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? He's asking a question. What good is it? So he's trying to teach them a principle here. So we can take this one of two ways. It is that uh, either he is saying that faith along with works is what gets you saved. That's, that's one option. Faith with works gets you saved. Which, by the way, I'll just give you a hint. That's not the doctrine that we're going down. It's not the reality of it. Or it's by my works... I show my faith is real, which is the actual what he's trying to say. So there is a, it's, a, it's a small distinction, but it has huge implications. You're not saved by what you do. Let's make that very clear as we move forward over the years. You're not saved by what you do. It's not a works-based system. It's very important that you understand that doctrine, that theology. As a Southern Baptist, it's very important you understand that. We are saved by grace, and grace alone, through faith in Jesus Christ alone. So then what is James trying to say? Is, is, this, is, this, uh, is he a heretic? Is he saying that, well, you, you got to have works to be saved? No, he's not saying you have to have works to be saved. What he's saying is that works are as evident of your salvation. Do you, does that make sense? Okay, this is not theology that says, okay, got to do this and this and this. How do I know that? Let me, let me give you some scriptures. So I'm going to go to Titus chapter 3, verse 5. You don't need to turn there. i got several passages of scripture. I want to back this, this, this doctrine up so that you know I'm not just willy-nilly saying something that God hasn't said. So in Titus chapter uh, 3, verse 5, it says this. He saved us not because of works, not because of works done by us in righteousness. So even if your works are awesomely good, he said, we're not saved by those works. You give a million dollars to the local charity, so what? I would encourage you to do that if you have a million dollars, but that's not going to save you. So in Titus it says, he saved us, who did? Jesus, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. 
according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. It's through Jesus. Okay, not enough for you. Let's go to Ephesians 2, verses 8 and 9. This is Ephesians 2, verses 8 and 9. Again, one more time. Ephesians 2, verses 8 and 9. says this, For by grace you have been saved through faith. Hmm, I think I just said that. Yeah. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not, listen, this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God. And very important here, not a result of works. Did you catch that? Your salvation is not a result of your own doing or of your works, no matter how good they might be. Okay? Lastly, let's go to Romans chapter 4. Romans chapter 4, verse 5 says this. Romans chapter 4 and verse 5. Okay, so if it's not by works and how what it says and to the one who does not work but believes in him who justifies the ungodly his faith is counted as righteousness romans chapter 4 verse 5 and to the one who does not work but believes in him who justifies the ungodly his faith is counted as righteousness Remember when Abraham went up the mountain and was to offer his son as a sacrifice. Can you just imagine that for a moment? That you're the mother or father and you have one child, a male son, and God says to you, I want you to go up here. I want you to start a fire. I want you to uh, sacrifice, kill, physically murder. I want you to kill your son. I want you to offer him as a sacrifice. Would you do that? Well, that's, a, that's no, right? We live in a society where, no, no, I'm not going to do that. Well, uh, the point of it is this, that when Abraham uh, became the leader of our nation, became the, the father of many, it was attributed to his, his faith was attributed to him by his works. It wasn't after his circumcision, it was before. That's something very important as we go through the doctrine of Salvation. You have to understand something. It's not the it's not the act of uh, circumcision that they performed. It was a mark. It's kind of like baptism. Baptism is not what saves you. It's an indication. It's a mark. It says this is an inward decision that has been made, uh, and I'm expressing it this way so that people can see that um, Abraham was uh, saved by faith. His faith was manifested in the fact that he literally had the knife ready to come down on his son. And at the last minute, an angel stopped him and provided the sacrifice. So, also, Jesus has provided a sacrifice for you. You don't have to try to kill yourself mentally, Physically, by that I mean working so hard to try to gain God's approval. And people oftentimes have good intentions, but hell's filled with a lot of people with good intentions. 
trying to do something to please God. And that would seem on the surface to be the right motive, right? To do something to please God. But if they never ever believe in the one who saves, then it's a problem. Because we, you and I, cannot take credit for something that God has given us. It's a gift. The gift of salvation is a gift. But there is one thing we must do. There is one work we must do. We must repent and turn to Jesus. We must repent and turn to Jesus and ask for forgiveness of sins. And you know what? He will. If you get into the doctrine of Calvinism and Arminianism and all that, we could even make the argument that the ability to even turn and repent is not of you. We won't go that deep today because God is sovereign and God has called and he has chosen his elected. But that, that, that being said, I want you to know this. It is doctrinally accurate, theologically accurate to say anybody who calls upon the name of Jesus Christ will be saved. Anybody who calls upon the name of Jesus will be saved. Anybody, anywhere, anytime, any sin who calls upon the name of Jesus Christ will be saved. Doesn't matter where you're at, matters where you're going. Doesn't matter where you've been, it's where you're headed. Don't let Satan tell you you're not good enough. Because the reality of it is in the theology of God and his divinity, you aren't good enough. That's why he sent Jesus. So maybe you're a, imagine that you had to be a, a, a runner and had to run a certain speed to get into heaven. It's just, I'm trying to use this as an analogy. You had to run as fast as Usain Bolt. You know who Usain Bolt, he like runs the 100 meter dash in under like nine seconds. It's crazy. He's super, super fast. And the law said you've got to run as fast as him in order to get into heaven. And most of you go, I can't do that. You're right, you can't do that. But God, I can run this fast. God said, but you're not running as fast as Usain Bolt. You're not running that fast. You're running really fast. You're running as fast as you can, but you're not running fast enough because the standard is Usain Bolt. You have to run a 9.3 second, 100 meter dash. And if you can't reach that, then you can't get into heaven. Well, heaven would be like two people, Usain Bolt and Jesus. Because none of us, and I can say it with confidence, are going to ever run that fast. And that's the reality of the works-based theology. If you plan to do enough for God, you're going to fail no matter how righteous it is. You must put your faith in Jesus. And what James is saying is that my faith is illustrated by my works. I'm not saved by my works, but my works show that I am indeed born again Christian. It's not the other way around. He gives us more insight. <clears throat> If someone says he has faith, so I say to you, I have faith. I believe in Jesus. I have faith. And there's a lot of times you go to these giant uh, get-togethers that maybe Billy Graham has done or Joel Osteen and you just name them, Franklin Graham, all of them. I don't mean positive or negative about any of them. I'm just saying people in general respond emotionally to these events and they come forward and they profess Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. And then most of them, a lot of them are saved, but some of them are not. Because even the act itself, that act of work, is not what saves you. Coming to the altar does not save you. Confessing your sin and receiving Jesus, really believing He is the Son of God, and putting your faith and trust in His Lordship and as your Savior is what saves you. 
<coughs> so he says that uh, someone says they have faith but have no works. Can that faith save him? Verse 15 says, if a brother or sister is poorly clothed, and we just talked about that in the first few verses, right? About judging somebody coming in. If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled without giving them the things they need for the body, what good is that? Somebody comes in, it's freezing outside, they have no coat on, they're turning blue, they got frostbite, and you say, you know what? Uh, we'll pray for you. Out. I think I talked about that a couple weeks ago. You have got a responsibility. We have a responsibility as a congregation, as a church, to serve God, to serve people. And sometimes that comes with an inconvenience clause. But I don't want to. Doesn't feel right. When Jesus went to the cross, it didn't feel right either. That's not a place he wanted to be. It's a place he chose to be for you and me. It was really, really inconvenient to die on a cross and die with all those lashes and blood pouring out of your body. And Jesus did it. You will never be, and you will never be, never succumb to that kind of pain ever in your life. You're going to have pain. Yes, we all do, but not to the point where Jesus had it. No way, Jose, that's not going to happen. The kind of pain that Jesus had, you and I are not going to suffer. He suffered for all of humanity's sins in that moment. It is finished. Literally finished. Sin. He defeated it. He defeated death. Then he says, put your faith in me. And when we turn to ourselves and say, but I'm going to do this, I'm going to do that, and I don't need Jesus because I can do this. That's what the Pharisees and the Sadducees and all those folks were saying at the time. And to this day, Israel says that. To this day, the majority of people in Israel, less than 7% of all people in Israel are born-again Christians. They're still Orthodox Jew or Muslim. To this day, they're stubborn. Their hearts have been hardened. And people refuse to receive Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. So he says, verse 17. So, also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Dead. I don't know about you, but when something's dead, it is not moving. It's doing nothing. It's rotting. It's, it's dead. It doesn't even know that it's dead. A dead animal does not know that it's dead. Anything, a, a dead flower does not know that it's dead. This is the scary part. We could be doing righteous works all day long, serving what we think is God in the name of God, casting out demons in the name of God, healing people in the name of God, going to church in the name of God, doing things in the name of Jesus and this and that in the name of Jesus. And yet somehow we miss the point. We never give credit to the man who hung on that cross. It's very important that humbly we recognize who we are in our position. Jesus died for you and for me, and we give him full credit. How dare us ever take any of the credit, even as small as it may be for any of that. How dare us to ever think for a moment because of what I do, God loves me more than the person next to me. 
Some of you can put $1,000 in the offering plate. Some can put a penny. Who does God love more? I have no idea. But God knows your heart. God knows your heart. You and I don't. And we can look at people's actions. We can have a good idea, right? But be very careful with that. Be very careful with that because you and I all stumble at times. We all say things, do things, say things, look, you know, look a funny way, whatever, accidentally, right? We do that. And thank God Jesus forgave us of that sin too. Right? But someone will say in verse 18, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. I will show you my faith by my works. My works don't save me, but my true faith, a true saving faith, the difference is this. I have a desire then to do these righteous works to please God. To take care of the poor. To take care of the homeless. To look after the widows. To take care of those who need taking care of. To tithe. To sing. To attend church. To play piano. To do whatever. I desire to do those things not because I'm trying to please God. But because God has saved me. I love him. And I'm doing these things in, 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 in tribute to him. Everything I do is because of what he did. And when we have that attitude it changes the way we do and approach life. And in the world in which we live, it's very, very difficult to do that. Even as a pastor, even in my home, we have a very quiet home, very lovely home. All these things I still struggle with. Satan throwing the fiery darts, trying to make us not so peaceful. You know what I mean? You have to earnestly say, no, I am going to demonstrate my faith through this. And I'm going to be kind. And I'm not going to cuss. And I'm not going to rant and I'm not going to rave and I'm not going to throw darts and I'm not going to do this. I'm not going to try to get revenge. I'm just going to let God take care of it. And you know what? He will. <laughs> the hard part is letting you deciding to let God take care of it. It is so hard because we want to do things ourselves. We're fix-it people, especially men. We want to get it done. We want to do it. When our wives talk to us, they don't want our opinion on how to fix it. They just want to talk to us, right, Julie? They just want to tell us. You don't want me to tell you how to fix it. Just She's like, shut up. Just listen to me. Okay, all right. Should actually say that. I feel that way. But someone will say, You have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. Let me end here. Verse 19, a stark warning to all of us. You believe that God is one. You believe that God is one, and you do well. Good. Good for you. You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe. And shudder. In the afterlife, folks. Because the musicians come forward. The demons, those in the afterlife, they without a doubt know who Jesus is. There is no, hmm, I wonder if it's real. No, it, no it, it's, you're not playing a game anymore. Listen, your eternal life starts now, not the moment you die. You have died to self, received Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. You've died to sin. You've died to become a new being. The old has gone, the new has come. I urge you to make that decision today, to, to die to self.
to give yourself to Jesus. Repent of your sins. Turn to him in all righteousness and, and, and walk in humility. Offer your body as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship, the Bible tells us. It is very, very hard, though. It is very, very hard. Nothing about being Christian is easy, okay? It's counterintuitive. It's counterculture. It, the things that we want to lash out at, or God says, listen, I'll take care of that. You got a problem? I'll take care of that. Learn to pray for the people you don't like. Because when you pray for them enough, suddenly, you stop not liking them. <laughs> you may not want to have them over for dinner, but the burden gets lifted. Because when you harbor hate and discontent for others in situations, it's only hurting you. The demons themselves know that Jesus is real to you. The demons are not saved. They didn't put their faith and their trust in Jesus. Have you? God loves you, so do I. Thanks for being with us today. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for your word. Thank you for the book of James, Lord. Thank you that this is where the rubber hits the road, that uh, to our testing of our faith is proven by our works, that we are not saved by our works. Rather, our works show that our faith is alive. And that's the key here, Lord, that our faith is alive as your son is alive, who defeated death. Lord, I just pray if there's anybody here today or listening that doesn't know you as their Lord and Savior, Lord, they would repent, turn to the Savior, turn to Jesus, receive him, and be saved. Lord, I thank you for the opportunity here today. Thank you for this congregation. It's in Jesus' name we pray. And the congregation says, Amen.